Amen. Okay, so Psalm 98. Uh, this is really, uh, there's a lot of similarities with this psalm and Psalm 96. So you'll notice we might cover some of those topics again. I'll try to not harp on the same things I harped on for Psalm 96. Uh, but this does come, cover a lot of the same material. And if something's repeated in Scripture, it's probably because it's important for us to get into us, right? So I think it's okay that there's going to be a little bit of repetition here. Uh, this psalm, we don't have uh, sure ideas of exactly the setting or scenario in which it was composed, but it seems most likely that this was after the return from exile to Babylon. So when the Babylonians took the Israelites, brought them over, they were in exile for 70 years, and then they come back and they rebuild the temple and the walls. This seems to be a psalm celebrating that particular deliverance or dedication. Uh, this is kind of the salvation of that period, you could say. God, just like he saved his people in the Exodus, this was another big salvation moment in the history of the people of Israel that God delivered them out of their oppressed state in Babylon. And this is going to be kind of um, a picture as we look at this is we see the application in that original context, God's deliverance, but this is really written for, written for our benefit, for our edification, for our instruction, because the Holy Spirit wrote this not just for the Jews at that time, but for his church in all ages. So we're going to take this and apply it to our state because God has given this to us for our use. And uh, this actually, it fits really nicely into three sections. Uh, verses one to three, we can think of as uh, the past the past deliverance accomplished by the king. Then verses four to six, our present experience and praise in the kingdom with the king. And then seven to the end, uh, the looking forward to the coming of the consummation of the kingdom and the future reign of the king. So we're going to kind of look at this in past, present, and future. So it starts off, O sing to the Lord, that is the Lord Jehovah, sing to the Lord a new song. We talked about last time, that's probably referring to this psalm, a psalm written for this new occasion, a new deliverance. This is one of the things they want the people to sing. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. He has done marvelous things. This word for marvelous is really interesting. Uh, the closest thing I could think of in English is the idea of mind-blowing. It like, it's an astonishment. It's a wonder. This is a mind-blowing reality, just what the Lord has done for his people. And found in this, that his right hand and his old holy arm have gained him the victory. Or that could be said as, has worked salvation for him. God's right hand, God's holy arm is what accomplished salvation for his people. And this verse, these verses remind us of a really beautiful passage. It's um, one of my favorites in the prophets, this passage in Isaiah 59. And what's happening here is uh, the spirit of God is lamenting just the sin of the people and how wicked the nation has become. And if we start in, uh, let's, in verse 12 of Isaiah 59, just, just listen to this picture being painted and then what it says God does. Our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgression and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, 
conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. And truth is fallen in the street. And equity cannot enter. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. But then here's what happens. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. This is just such a beautiful picture of how God is the one who intervenes and plucks us up out of our great wickedness. We could never accomplish salvation for ourselves. We could never accomplish our own deliverance from the sins of our own heart. And God sees this and he wondered, there's no intercessor. There's no mediator between God and man. And then his own arm, God says, I will do it. I will accomplish salvation for his people. And where is this ultimately fulfilled but the man of God's right hand, the great mediator, the Lord Jesus, who is that accomplishment of God's right arm, bringing salvation for his people, accomplishing the righteous life we could never live. God's own arm brought salvation. And this is um, an arm of victory. And that's what we're talking about here. God defeated death. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave like we was preached about this morning which was really a fitting connection to what we're talking about here. God has accomplished the salvation, so he gets the glory for it, not us, because we are only conquerors as we come in the train of our great conqueror. So we're thinking of salvation in the past. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness, or justice, you could say. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. And God's salvation... It shows his justice or his righteousness as he rights wrongs. For people, for Israel that was in bondage in Egypt, enslaved, oppressed, injustice abounding, God delivers them and that deliverance reveals how righteous he is to make what's wrong right. But even furthermore, there's this conundrum that really goes throughout the whole Old Testament which is that we know God cannot just overlook sins because God is righteous. He can't just wipe the slate clean without a true payment for sin for his justice. But then Christ is the answer. And we're told in Romans 3 that through Jesus paying for our sins, that's how God can justify sinners and be just while doing it. God accomplishes salvation but maintains his justice Because those sins are actually paid for in Christ. He's just in being the one who justifies. And so his salvation also reveals his righteousness. And it says this has happened in the sight of the nations. And how can this be really in the sight of the nations when this is in the Old Testament? So I think, how has God revealed salvation in the sight of the nations? I I think we can look at this in a couple different ways. Uh, We can look at this in a narrow way. We can look at this in a broader way. And so I would posit that there's some levels here that we see what it means for God's salvation to be published and revealed. I think firstly, the first level you could say of salvation are those particular historical acts of deliverance that the Lord accomplished. So first you have the exit or even before that you have um, Noah and the ark. 
And God's deliverance comes by way of saving a people in the ark. Deliverance again comes in Exodus. This is the great salvation event of the Old Testament where God delivers his people. And then this one, um, um, where this psalm was composed, that deliverance out of Babylon. But then finally that deliverance through Christ's work on the cross to ransom and redeem a people for himself. So we have salvation seen through particular historic events. And that's God's righteousness being revealed. With Noah, it was revealed in the sight of all peoples. Uh, revealed in the sight of the Egyptians in the Exodus. The sight of the Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians. And in the cross, we know, and even at Pentecost, there was an amalgam of tons of different nations coalesced in Jerusalem that did see that salvation. And that message very quickly spread. And this is the second level I think we can see salvation as. God reveals his salvation through the declaration of the message of salvation. So as the apostles and evangelists in the early church go out, God reveals his salvation in the sight of the nations through the message of the gospel going forth. And that happens still to this day. The message of the gospel going forth, the ends of the earth knowing Christ's deliverance. And isn't that what we want to see? The ends of the earth to hear of the deliverance of God. But then thirdly, at the last level here, God's righteousness and salvation are revealed when he actually saves souls in the conversion of a sinner's heart. Every time there's a conversion, that's God's deliverance being made known in that person's life. And perhaps even corporately, every time God brings revival to a dying church or revival to a dying nation, that's his salvation and deliverance being made known. And isn't that what we want to see in Zealand, in our communities, in our family members, God's salvation and deliverance to be made known in changed lives in joyful churches filled with worshipers of Jehovah. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Any thoughts or questions so far? Uh, Verse 3 here. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. This salvation comes as part of God's continuing relationship with the people of Israel. Uh, The word mercy there is better translated as that word for faithful love or covenant love or steadfast love and faithfulness. And these you could think of as love and faithfulness are the two most essential parts of a covenant. And when you think covenant, really all we're saying is relationship. Covenant is what we're talking about when we're talking about relationship with God. God has relationship with people on the basis of covenant. And covenant is typified best by these two words, love and faithfulness. Now, think about your marriages, if you've had the privilege of being married. Uh, Mine wasn't too far in the past, so I remember it pretty good. But the basic vow is that you say, I vow to be a loving and faithful husband unto you, or a loving and faithful wife. And that's really what we promise to each other in marriage, that we will be loving, that we will always seek to maintain love in our dispositions and in our actions, And to be faithful, to forsake all others for you. Love and faithfulness are the essential elements of a covenantally bound relationship. And God remembers this relationship with his people that he set his love on them and he's being faithful to them. And he's faithful even though Israel sins so horribly and walks away from God so much. Think of Hosea and Gomer as Gomer prostitutes herself to other men away from her husband. 
Yet God remembers his relationship and works salvation to redeem his people. Such a beautiful picture of just, that's how faithful God is. And if we think of just the ways we struggle in life, the sins we're dealing with, our sufferings, if God could be faithful to such a wicked people as Israel that turned away, how much more will he be faithful to his own children that have been bought by the blood of Christ? He's remembered his mercy and faithfulness. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Kind of what we talked about earlier. They see it in the proclamation. They see it when he actually delivers. And when we think of God remembering his mercy and faithfulness to the house of Israel, uh, this is a bit of a side note, but I don't, I don't know why it struck me so much this week, but I was talking to a friend at seminary from Egypt. Uh, and Egypt is really it's more of a Middle Eastern context than it is in African, even though it's technically in Africa. But I was just reminded, and someone just said this, that we need to remember as Westerners that the Bible wasn't first our book. Like the Bible isn't like our thing and we're like, we just need to share the Bible with everyone else. It's like Middle Eastern people wrote the Bible. Like those people that we immediately think of as Muslims, a false religion. That's our, usually our first connotation. It's like that's where God gave his word. And it's come from them to us. And maybe now it is time for us to bring it back to them. As Pastor Dale said, Iran is where there's massive gospel explosion. But just that thought of like, oh yeah, the Bible wasn't our thing. It came to us out of the Middle East, and it's come across the ocean into America and has affected salvation in our own lives. We're at the ends of the earth already. And like so beautiful that God would have given us his truth in the scriptures that it's been able to be passed on to us, that we get to grow uh, with this beautiful book, this beautiful message of truth we have. Uh, any thoughts or questions? And so this is looking at salvation in the past. We remember what God has done for us. We remember what God has done for people. And maybe this is an aside too. This is something that hit me um, maybe about half a year ago. Reading through the Psalms and you look at how much the praise for God's salvation is corporate salvation. You've been merciful to the house of Israel. You've been faithful to the house of Israel. And we read verses like this and we think, ah, oh God, you've remembered your faithfulness to me. You've remembered your mercy to me, which is a, that, that, that is a valid way of taking those. But I feel like we, in our individualistic society, we just get so much less out of that idea of, wow, God, you've been faithful to your church. The gates of hell have not prevailed against your church. You're saving and gathering a people all around the world. And I praise you for the church. I praise you for what you're doing with a collective people. Just something for us to think of as we read texts like that. Let's actually remember that corporate dimension and try to be more aware of that. Is that valid? Okay, so now we come into the present. In light of this great salvation, in light of this great deliverance, what sort of people ought we to be? And the answer is a praising people, a rejoicing people, a celebratory people. Because if our king has brought us the victory... Isn't that cause for celebrating? And just think again of those, I think we talked about this last week, but just a picture, if you, if you picture any oppressed people group living under a tyrannical ruler, being oppressed, and then when they're delivered, there's such rejoicing. Uh, if you think back to World War II, uh, Canada didn't have a huge part, but the one thing Canada did do in World War II is that we were basically tasked with the liberation of the Netherlands. 
So we took our armies to that one little country because that was about all we could handle. And we basically kicked out uh, the enemies and brought liberation to those people. And if you look at stories or pictures of the time, the rejoicing in the streets that the enemy's been defeated and we have peace. And we want to almost be holding on to that at every moment. If you talk to someone that actually lived through a deliverance in World War II, it'll still bring tears to their eyes as they remember what life was like under oppression, but then what life is like in deliverance. And that, the emotional power of that. And we, all, we don't want to lose that for ourselves as we think of how God has delivered us from a lifetime of misery serving our sins. A lifetime of serving our lusts that would never bring us fulfillment of seeking to gain some sort of status or enjoyment in this world, that would have really just been a dead end. Praise the Lord that he's delivered us from sin, from that bondage. And so these are the people we ought to be. We ought to shout joyfully to Jehovah. And we want all the earth, everyone that's seen and heard the salvation of God, shout to the Lord, break forth in song. That word break forth is like the word explode. To just, you, I can't even contain this, what's within me. I just got to rejoice before the Lord. I've got to celebrate before my God. And shout joyfully, actually means shout. I'm so excited, I just want to shout to the Lord. Break forth in song, rejoice, sing praises. Uh, it's amazing, in this, in this psalm, there's nothing really about our duty um, as far as works. It just talks about our praise. And think of Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about God's predestination. And what does it say? But we've been predestinated to be to the praise of his glory. Praise and praising God is not an insignificant part of the Christian life, but it's at the very core. It's at the very essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be one that delights to praise God. And think of the times in the Psalms where it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me, or I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And I think we talked about this last week, but that connection between delight and praise. You truly praise what has brought you joy. If a good meal has brought you pleasure, you will praise the cook or you'll just praise the food. Mm, this is so good. This is so wonderful. And if we've tasted of the goodness of God, as Psalm 34 says, we're supposed to taste and see that God is good. Wow, that should result in joy and praise. And so we ought to be marked as Christians, as a people with joyful praise. And I think in our Reformed churches, there are two parts to worship. Um, Psalm 2 says, rejoice with trembling. So reverence, but joy. And we're generally pretty good at the reverence part. Uh, we're pretty good at coming to God respectfully, not flippantly, not overly casually. But we miss out, I think, a little bit on this joy part. That joy is supposed to be the main characteristic. That if someone walks in with no church experience and walks into our worship, they ought to be thinking, wow, what a joyful people. They love singing to this God. Why could they be so happy about this? Why would they be so joyful about this? So let's receive this to ourselves and be like, is my worship characterized by joy? Is my heart lifted up as we pray about how great and beautiful God is as we read his word and have the privilege of sitting under truth. That ought to make us really glad, really happy people. And the word for joy in the Old Testament is actually the word that talks about a deer that's like hopping around, frolicking over the hills. Like this isn't just that like deep-seated peace joy, but like this is that really actually happy, excited joy. Uh, verse 5. 
Sing to the Lord with the harp, uh, or it could be the, the lyre, a stringed instrument. Um, oh, the word sing there in verse 5 means actually to sing accompanied to a, a stringed instrument, based on a word that actually means to pluck. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm. The word psalm there really just means a song that's accompanied by an instrument. Verse 6, with trumpets, and this is probably referring to um, a metal horn, um, a long a long silver trumpet, kind of like they use to summon the people to worship in the tabernacle. They use silver horns, uh, or silver trumpets, and the sound of a horn, which is, uh, that if you guys know what a shofar is. They still have them in Israel. A shofar is basically a ram's horn. So you have a curved little piece, and you blow the shofar. And actually, in, uh, in the circles I grew up in in church, it was quite different than probably what most of you have experienced. But we actually, there was like people that were really into shofars and would bring them to church. And just in the middle of the service, someone would like whip out a shofar out of their pocket and start like blowing the ram's horn. And it's like, and it's very loud. Like there's no like tonal control. Uh, so sho- blowing, okay, that's a totally random story. But anyways. Did you ever blow the shofar? I tried. Someone gave me one from a trip to Israel and I could never figure out how to blow it. But I still have it in my bedroom back at my parents' house. Um, yeah, sound of trumpets, sound of horns. So we have here stringed instruments, plucked instruments, horns. are actually pretty similar to what we use at church. Hey, a trumpet, piano is technically a stringed instrument, but we've made ours digital. Um, and violin. So we're like super biblical here, I guess. Uh, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Uh, so up to this point, everything I said, praise, give praise to the Lord. Um, Shout joyfully to the Lord. And those are kind of implied words. But here we have something different. Shout joyfully before the Lord. Shout joyfully before the Lord. This is an intentional word change here. Uh, And that word before there is actually the word for face. To shout joyfully as in front of God's face. Right in front of him. That his face is right in our view. So this this is the idea of we're praising in the presence of God, with his face looking upon us, his face right in front of us. That's what our worship ought to feel like. Not a God way up far away, but a God who's close, a God whose face is watching us. And even think about the benediction that Dale gave at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine on you, to be gracious to you, to lift up the light of his countenance, his face, a pleasurable disposition of the face, I'll pour on you and give you peace. And that's what we ought to be thinking of when we're worshiping God. We want to bring a smile to that face. As we worship this wonderful creator, we want to remember that we're doing this before his face, and we're doing this to bring him pleasure. It's not for ourselves, it's not for our neighbor, but the reason we gather together on Sundays is to worship God It's primarily for him and not for us. I was listening to um, speakers the other day who were kind of saying like, you know, church is kind of done. We can listen to podcasts and sermons now. We don't need to go for discipleship. We can get teaching um, anywhere else. You can find just more information than you could ever find. So why would we make church about sermons and why would we really do this? And here's what I think is the primary reason is that we come to church to worship God as a church. You can't worship God as a church by yourself because you are not a church. You're a part of the church. 
And so the body worshiping God as a body is different than you worshiping God as a piece of the body. And there is a particular presence of Christ that delights to dwell when his body gathers to worship in a special way. And whether or not you receive massive new revelations or learn the most interesting things you've ever heard in church is not really the primary point. The primary point of why we come here is because God deserves our worship. And so when we are singing to God, we are giving him the worship of us together. When we hear his word read or spoken, what we're doing is as we give our attention to God's word, that honors him and that is an act of worship. The worship isn't just what we give to God, but it's also how we respond to what he gives to us. Um, I really like this thing I heard recently. This guy was saying that of the essence of worship is focus, is attention. And so as we give our attention to God's word when it's preached, that honors God because it's saying your word is valuable and I care to listen. You can tell if someone doesn't really value what you're saying if they've zoned out and are kind of wandering all around, right? But when someone's looking you in the eye and listening you know that they're really treasuring, they're valuing what you're saying. So when we give God our focus in the word, that is an act of worship. So that is primarily why we gather, because God deserves the worship of each one of us. Any disagreement there? You're allowed to disagree. Is, worship, is church outdated? Should we just scrap this whole business? Maybe. That's probably too scary to say, even if you disagree. Uh, so this is, this is our present reality, our praise of God. And something, I think, significant here, and this isn't an idea I've fully worked through, so if you have another thought on this, jump in. But I was just thinking about praise as spiritual warfare. As we think of the kingdom of God and the king, and that Jesus, in a sense, as, as our king, leading the charge, and us following behind him as his people, how do we do battle against all the false truths, all the lies, all the principalities and powers in this world? I think part of it is praise. I think that, I don't know exactly what happens in the spiritual realm, those two things are too high above me, but I think our praise does something. And I think it does something in the heavenlies. I couldn't describe what or how, but there is a power when we come together and worship the king, that does something. It does something in our own lives. And who knows, maybe it even does something in this city. That when we delight to honor God in a world with a lot of darkness, who knows the power of that? Uh, I think of the story, and maybe this is a slightly fanciful way to take it, but there's an awesome story in Second Chronicles 20 where King Jehoshaphat, they're surrounded by enemies and they're like ready to die. And what does God instruct them to do but to send out the worshipers in front of the army with the instruments and they go singing, praise God for his love endures forever. And as they march out towards an enemy that vastly outnumbers them, they have the worshipers and it says God set an ambush for them and they ended up destroying themselves. There's a power in our praise and maybe the praise is like the spearhead of our spiritual war. That as we go with eyes fixed on the king and our vision is captivated by his greatness, maybe that just encourages us and gives us the courage to press on in the small things. Kind of like the sermon this morning. Why does the victory of Jesus give us courage? Because we know that 
in our daily life in home, when the world feels really small or you feel trapped in a boring job, whatever it might be, um, we have an opportunity to praise God in our weakness. Uh, that's the, one of the things we can do here on earth that we can't do in heaven. In heaven, you can't look to God in your weakness and you can't praise him in the midst of your suffering. That's something you can only do now and that does give special glory to God. So in the present, we want to be a joyful, loud, excited, praising people. Uh, any other thoughts there before we get to the session? Yeah, Chris. And I guess when you put it that way and you think of us as a body, that how joyful the devil is when there's little dissensions that creep into a church or any little things that can weasel in to tear a body apart or make it so that when we do come to worship, there are little things that cause divisions and break down that unity. Yeah. yeah, well, like, what's a great way to break up an army, right? Get them in fighting. Um, I, I've been reading 1 Corinthians lately, and I was so struck in chapter 3. He says, you are so fleshly. You're so carnal because you have divisions saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And I was like, wow, like, when we think of someone who's really, oh, like, oh, they're a, a carnal Christian. They're really fleshly. We think of like just grotesque sin, sexual sin. He says, no, one of the most fleshly, carnal, gross things to God is when we're divided against ourselves in his body. There's stuff to think about. Uh, the future section here, verse 7, let the sea roar in its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. We looked at this a bit last week. Um, sea and land. Rivers which flow to the sea level, the mountains, up to the heights. Every part of this world is supposed to rejoice before God. Uh, we think of Romans 8 here, that the creation itself has been subject to bondage, and the creation itself waits the deliverance of that new heavens and new earth that we heard about this morning. A world where righteousness dwells, where even the creation is set free from bondage, set free from pollution, set free from death, Whatever it may be, the created world set free. And the world is rejoicing now because it knows that that's coming. It knows that the king has come and is bringing a kingdom. And here's why it says there's rejoicing. And even all the world. So world, us, everything in the universe. Here's why we rejoice. Because he, the Lord, is coming to judge the earth. That word judge, again, is the word of governing a word of ruling, and a word of law-giving. It's the work of a king, the work of a king. He's coming to judge the earth with righteousness or with justice. He will judge the world and the nations or the peoples with equity. With, that is, equity is evenness or straightness. Um, the, the world likes to talk a lot about equality today, but we have a God that actually gives true equality. True evenness. Everyone alike a sinner in the sight of God. Everyone alike um, on the same level. None better than another. Uh, Colossians 3. There's not male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. In Christ, we're all just a part of the body. No parts exalted above another, but we need all. We have the true equity. And God is coming to judge. Um, and so as we, as we just think of this last thought here, let's think of the already not yet of the kingdom. So Christ the king came, and this is really what we heard this morning. He bound Satan and established his reign. 
but his reign has not been fully accomplished yet. You can think of it as the difference between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was when the beaches of Normandy were stormed and victory was assured. The tide of the war was decisively turned in favor of victory, but yet there was still evil. There was still bondage. And then the work from D-Day on was to press on eradicating the enemy and establishing righteous rule until V-Day, Victory in Europe Day, when they could declare evil has been eradicated. And so that's us. It's D-Day in Christ, and we're now the church going forward, seeking to seek have the king's reign expanded, the king's rule in the hearts of men increased, until that final day when the world becomes the Lord's in its fullness. And Jesus takes the world and hands it over, and it becomes the kingdom of his father. And we hear that voice, what they say in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God is coming to judge. We look to the future and praise that God has come in Christ. He is coming as the church grows and expands. The justice of the king, the equity of the king is growing in this world. And, but we look forward to the day when there will be no more pockets of evil, where there will be no more darkness, where the victory will be the Lord's and we get to rejoice with God in the new heavens, in the new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. What an amazing privilege that will be. Um, we just have a minute, uh, two minutes left. I just wanted to read, read a song. Uh, if, I, if I'm being honest, this morning, I, for the first time of the year, I turned on some Christmas music. Uh, so for me, it was, it, it was time. Uh, so, but I was reminded of um, one of our favorite Christmas songs, which is actually based on Psalm 98. This very one is Joy to the World. So I just asked we've been talking about this. Listen to the words of this song and think about all these things that we've just been reading. And it's, it's, a, it's fairly a paraphrase, but a lot of these ideas are presented here really beautifully. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Indeed, our king rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations, as his justice and kingdom goes forth, the nations prove, the nations find out the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Uh, What a wonderful God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what cause there is for us to rejoice in you and find joy in you, but yet our vision is so often cast to the things of this earth. We so often are just caught up in our daily existence and we don't reflect on what an amazing deliverance and purchase you have accomplished for us. Just what an amazing salvation you've prepared for your people that you have shone light in our dark hearts and you've swept us up into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we know that you've saved us that we might be to the praise of your glorious grace. So would you make us a praising people? 
Would you make us a people that has such delight and joy in you that it overflows in lives of praise and that the praise in your church, the praise in our hearts would be an attack, as it were, against the darkness of this world and that we would have our heart's prayer be that your name would be hallowed as your kingdom comes, that all peoples would come to worship this good, gracious, and righteous king to see your will be done in earth and would it be done in our own hearts, that we would be obedient servants of the king following the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.